Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and for thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary uh, space, and really glad uh, that you're here. And those of you that are joining us online, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, around your dining room table. Thanks for inviting us into those uh, spaces. And if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, whether here in person or online, my name is Jamie, and it's my honor, it's my privilege to be one of the pastors at Crosspoint. Uh, it's a joy for me to get to open up God's Word. And this morning, uh, we are continuing the, this series called Come and See. It's this journey through the great book of John, where John tells us very clearly why he wrote the book. It's this uh, account of the life of Jesus, and he tells us that he wrote this down so that we might believe and come to have life in the name of Jesus, all right? And so that's what we're exploring together, and that is something that needs to be explored if you're somebody that wrestles with, like, you've got doubts, and you're wondering if... Christianity is true if Jesus is who he says he is, and this is a perfect book to begin, and yet it's also this ongoing invitation to believe. Do I believe and trust Jesus for the things that I face each and every day as a follower of him? And this morning, we find ourselves in a text that um, is perhaps, it might be the most famous verse in the book of John, um, and it might be even the most famous book or verse in the book of the Bible, um, in, in the entire Bible, um, and it's John 3.16, all right? And so I was thinking about this uh, this week, and I'll read the text here in just a moment, but John 3.16 tends to show up at sporting events, doesn't it, right? Um, and so if you remember those days when people attended sporting events um, and then carried signs into said sporting events, it wouldn't be uncommon for you to see, you know, somebody's kicking an extra point, um, and they're, you know, behind the goalpost, there, there is somebody holding a sign that says John 3.16, or maybe behind the basket is somebody shooting a free throw um, in the, you know, March Madness tournament, like whatever it happens to be, all sorts of things. And so this week, I just, I did this search for like, just, I was trying to find a picture of just somebody holding up one of those signs. And what it led me to was something a bit unexpected, um, was a detailed history, numerous articles, one of which written by at Forbes.com, about how that actually started. I actually had no idea. I just assumed, like, I don't know, that's maybe just what people did, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't sure what the history was. I never considered it. Um, but there is a particular history. Maybe you know this. Uh, if, if you did, I think you could enlighten me with maybe more details. But what was new to me was learning of a man uh, whose name was Roland Stewart, all right? Um, and so you'll see him here. Uh, there's the, the picture of, of Roland. Um, and uh, he's got the John 3.16 shirt on. Uh, he's got the multicolored wig that he would put on. And in, it was around 1979, 1980, um, he decided, uh, he apparently was known for attending like Laker basketball games and just dancing with the wig and all that. And he also became a Christian. And so then he decided, oh, I could merge those things together. Like he was the guy that would like to dance for the camera. And then he's like, what if I got attention, but then also used it to push forward the, the message of Jesus? And so throughout the 80s, he made a particular goal of at least two times a week attending a major sporting event or some sort of major thing. Apparently, he's even gone to royal weddings before and somehow crashed that with the John 316 sign, right? So he used to sort of all over the place. Apparently, like the guys in like the production, you know, trucks and crews would get very angry at him. Like, there he is again. He would, he was, it was not uncommon for him to try and find a particular seat once he realized the camera angle because he would literally, pre-smartphone, you know, smartphone, he carried a portable little TV and then would watch the game and try and figure out, oh, okay, that spot. And then he'd figure out, well, if somebody was seated in that spot, people would actually tell stories of like, he came up to me and was like, hey, 
can your child just like move over so I can sit here for just a moment, right? And so people would, would do that. He kind of became legendary through most of the 80s, all right? And this is where the sign, where this originated. Um, and it seems rather innocuous, and it seems like, okay, that's, that's kind of interesting, until late 80s, he started doing more eccentric things. And so he's at, I believe it was at the Masters or the US Open, I can't remember which, and Jack Nicholas was in his backswing and he let off like this air horn. Then he decided, I need to get more attention. Apparently he started using stink bombs, don't recommend that. Um, and just, you know, he kind of started to have this, this view of like the world is gonna end soon. And finally, in September of 1991, it ended with a, a showdown between him and the Los Angeles police, like the SWAT team, as he barricaded himself in a hotel had a couple people held hostage um, and was threatening to shoot airplanes as they came into LAX and just kind of literally detached from reality and is now serving like three life sentences for all of these said things. And so you're like, wow, that got dark really quick, right? Um, now, I hear that and I, you know, I had no idea that this, this actually existed. I literally was just Google image, John 316, and you never know what you're gonna find, right? Um, and so reading up on this guy and realizing not to pin it all on him, all right? But the passage I'm gonna to read to you in just a moment um, is gonna be Jesus' call for us to be born again. And I think it's fair to say this, that that term, that phrase, that invitation is something that even as the church, I, I sense people, because I can sense it in my, myself, because I think we don't necessarily wanna be associated with kind of just the, kind of the crazy stuff that's out there, that we're reticent to use that term. In fact, I feel like it's sort of been co-opted and it kind of means like just this, this level of Christianity, like almost like we wouldn't agree with, but yet it's in the Bible and it's Jesus' way in this, one of his first, what we have in the book of John, like extended conversations. He's going to be with a man named Nicodemus. He's calling him to that and he's calling us to that. And so what does it look like to rightly understand John 3.16 and to rightly understand being born again? And is it this call to like this fanaticism? Like, is that, is that what it is? Or what would it look like to be a group of people that rightly understood what it entails, what it means to be born again, and what it looks like then to invite other people into that? So let me go ahead and read uh, the text this morning. John chapter 3. If you brought a Bible, you can turn there. You can always go to cplife.church on your phone right now, and then you can swipe over. You'll see a, a, a card that says message notes, and so the text will be there as well as uh, anything that I'm putting up on the slides that this morning. That content will be there. There's space to take notes. All right, so John chapter 3. Let me just read it's a rather lengthy account. There's more in here than we have time to get into, so we'll kind of look at some big themes throughout it, but I want to read it in its entirety. This encounter that Jesus has with this man named Nicodemus that we get introduced to. So John chapter 3. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to him at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Verse nine. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? Truly I tell you, we speak what we know, 
We testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. This is God's word to us. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at how this gets introduced. Like, how are we actually introduced to this man named Nicodemus? And we'll look at sort of this this condition, and then we're going to explore a bit more of like, okay, what is Jesus calling us to? Like, what does he mean when he talks about being born again? Um, And then if we're going to be born again, like, how does that actually happen? Like, what's what's the cost? What's the commitment? Like, what does that actually look like? But first, we've got to start with how this starts. We're going to look at the first three verses of this condition as we're introduced to this man named Nicodemus. Now, this is very basic, all right, um, but here's what I learned in seminary. John chapter 3 follows John chapter 2, all right? Definitely worth my money to go, right? Um, now, I say that because I'm jokingly, obviously, but, but it is very key that when we start somewhere, like what if you weren't here last week or you didn't hear the message, like, right? Like these are building. And so it's always helpful to not just pluck these things out but realize, hey, there's some threats. And in particular, the way John masterfully is telling this story, things he's introduced in chapter one, that theme, those themes begin to show up, even light and darkness that comes up here in John chapter three, he's introduced in chapter one. And there's this kind of, there's this thread or there's this trajectory of things. And so let me go back to the end of chapter two. Eric did a great job preaching this message last week. And so you can go get that on, on the website. But John chapter two, 24 to 25, ends with Jesus making this declaration. It says this, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man. Now, here's the key. For he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. So what's it driving at? Jesus is aware of all that resides in humanity, right? So lest the women think for a moment, like, oh, it's just the men that are being, no, no, no. It's like all of us, right? Like, that's what it means, like, He knows what is inside of your heart. He knows the sin problem. He knows all of that. And so when chapter three starts, now look with me, all right? It begins this way. John writes, there was a man. This is a connective thread, a connective tissue, if you will, that's meant to say, okay, here's how end of chapter two was, and telling us that Jesus knows what's in a man, and now in this first extended sort of conversation, we're told, There was a man. This is John's way of cluing us in under the inspiration of the Spirit to say, I'm gonna show you what Jesus just described. I'm gonna showcase for you what actually that looks like. What is in a man? There was a man. Now, 
What I would expect then is that, for instance, John chapter four would be what we get. We're gonna get there in a, in a few weeks, but in John chapter four, it's Jesus' encounter with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. It will be very clear when you read that she doesn't fit in. She does, she's done a lot of things in her life that would bring shame, a lot of sinful things. She wasn't part of the, the right people, right? Like she's, she's not a Jew, she's a Samaritan. I mean, all of these things. And so for the original hearers of this, I think you would expect, it'd be fair to expect, that's the type of story Jesus would tell. And certainly he does tell those stories. Like we're gonna see that. But when he starts here in John chapter three, when we get this account, it's a man named Nicodemus. And as you noticed, some of the descriptions of him, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And he comes at night to Jesus and he says, Rabbi. And so there's some of the descriptions. He's a Pharisee, he's a ruler, and he's even deferential or respectful. Like He doesn't roll up to Jesus like he's got it all figured out. So in some ways he can be commended for that. But I find it so interesting that if Jesus knows what's in a man, and then here's the description, the man that we see here in John chapter three seemingly has it all together. He's a Pharisee, which means he knows the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards, probably has much of it memorized. Like he is a scholar himself. He's part of the ruling class, so he's got power, he's got clout, he's part of the Sanhedrin. He would have been somebody, all right, that when people thought about like maybe encouraging their kids, like, hey, here's somebody to grow up to be like, they probably would have said, hey, you know Nicodemus? Like, follow him. So he's got power, he's got clout, he's got intellect, he's, he has a life that is put together. He doesn't show up to Jesus and appear at first glance like his life is falling apart. It is relatively put together. And I think this is what is so helpful, all right? If we're honest with one another, like if we answered the questions honestly as we all came in this morning, like, hey, how are you doing? If we really could be honest, I think we could all hopefully get to a spot and be like, I'm a, I'm a colossal train wreck, how are you, right? Like there, there's this mess. But the reality is, and the dangerous place that we live in right now is like Nicodemus, we can be applauded for looking like we have it all together. And Jesus loves us too much to allow us to continue in that. And so he confronts Nicodemus, but it's not just a confrontation with Nicodemus, it's a confrontation to me, because he knows what is in me, and he knows what is in you. And so Jesus says this in verse three to the man that is put together, the man who seemingly has it all going right. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's no part of Jesus that speaks to him and encourages him. It's great that you learned all this stuff or that you're part of this ruling class and that you're part of the things, the things that you've accomplished. Right out of the gate, Jesus says to this man, who is, I wouldn't even say humbly inquiring of Jesus, he loves him enough to confront him with the truth of his condition and says, I don't care what you've done, I don't care your resume, I don't care what people are gonna say about you at your funeral, if you're not born again, you will be separated from me. This eternal life, the kingdom of God that you long for, like you won't have any part in it. He loves him enough to say that. And so for a moment here too, it'd be helpful when it says you will not see the kingdom of God, 
And he's gonna talk about eternal life in this section. Like, it's a way to talk about this life that God's people long for. They long for the Messiah to come. So even on this Palm Sunday, I'm gonna read a passage here in a moment that ties directly to what we were singing about in that first song, and the, 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 the passage that, that was read already this morning, the things that have been talked about. But there was this expectation that God would come and he would set everything right. And Jesus is saying, if you want in on, so let me read it to you, Isaiah chapter 65, this is one of the pictures. If you want in on this, apparently you gotta be born again. For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad, rejoice forever in what I am uh, creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. I mean, in all the pain and struggle of life, I mean, like, Take Jerusalem out of that context and just say, like, oh, there'll be no more pain or crying or anything in the Orlando area. I mean, don't we? I mean, we long for that, right? If it could be like there'd be no more pain or crying or tears or hurt or discouragement in my neighborhood, in my house, right? Like, all of that. Like, there's this expectation. There's this longing. And this is a promise that God gave. Like, this is what he's going to do. So the people were living with this awareness. And so Nicodemus would have been like, this is what I want in on. This is why he says, Jesus, like, he's really coming to him. Like, are you the Messiah? What, what do I need to do to get in on this? And that's why Jesus in love confronts him the way that he does. There is this expectation. This ties to even the day that we're celebrating today is Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Just this all-encompassing, look what God is doing. So I want in on that life. That's what, it's, that's what it means. Like the kingdom of God, to have eternal life, it's, it's more than simply like, okay, when you die, are you gonna be with Jesus? I mean, that, that's amazing. But it's literally like God's gonna renew and restore everything. New heavens, new earth, dwelling with God. Like, that's what we're made for, right? Genesis 1 and 2, like walking with, with God. That's what it is, to be in the presence of God. And for that to happen, Jesus says to this man who has everything going for him, hey, none of that matters. You must be born Again, So look with me at verses 4 to 13, and we'll just kind of take some highlights in this, all right? But there's then this calling, all right? So Jesus says you must be born again. And then Nicodemus, which I just love him, right? I mean, he's, he, he hears this, and he's a very logical man. He's like, okay, if that's the case, like he asks, I think, a very natural, logical question, right? I think he's somebody that's just like fairly detail-oriented. He's like, okay, so you said born again, verse 4. How can anyone be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? At a surface level, it's like, yeah, like we all have that question. Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? But what John is doing in this account of this story and what we're seeing in this encounter, all right, when he says, how can anyone be born when he is old? Jesus is showcasing for us. Nicodemus, you're asking the wrong question. Like, you're at one level, you're at one particular layer, but we've got to go deeper. We've got to get to the real issue. We've got to get to the heart of the matter. 
What Jesus is wanting Nicodemus to consider and what he is wanting you and I to consider, whether you walked in here this morning as a follower of Christ or you walked in here with like, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff and somebody dragged me here this morning, right? Um, Wherever you are across that spectrum, Jesus wants us to consider what does he mean by this call to a, a birth from above or a new birth or being born again? And I think a way to get at that is to ask about the first birth, all right? So maybe frame it this way. Think about this, all right? How much did you contribute to your first birth? Now, obviously, we, we know the answer. Like, uh, nothing, right? Like, you didn't pick your parents, all right? Um, you didn't pick the time you were going to be born, when you were going to be born. You didn't pick, like, you didn't pick the color of eyes you have, or the hair. Like, you didn't pick any of it, right? Like, you literally contributed nothing, right? And so as we think about that, it's kind of, okay, it's kind of comical, and we can kind of, yeah, yeah, I didn't contribute anything. We are now starting to get at the truth that Jesus wants us to see. Okay, first birth, you did not a zero, zilch. You didn't do anything. So guess what? If you're going to be born again, Nicodemus, it's not about what you're going to do, what you're going to achieve. All of that stuff is actually out the window. What I'm trying to tell you, I'm in love, he's saying, is that you didn't have anything to do with your first birth, and you're not going to have anything to do with your second birth. It is all by the grace of God. And so it's in this context that there are in this understanding that Jesus, he's building upon like the Old Testament prophecies. He's building upon all the things that they might have known. So let me read one of them to you. It's out of the book of Ezekiel, all right? Um, which probably you have memorized, but in case you don't, all right? Like Ezekiel chapter 36. And notice, I'll put this, when I put this up on the screen, like notice the emphasis. It's gonna say multiple times, I will, I will, I will. And it's not Ezekiel. It's God himself is doing these things, reminding us again and again and again, in the same way you didn't do anything for your first birth, you're not gonna do anything for your second birth. And he's calling Nicodemus, listen, man, like, will you humble yourself enough to embrace that reality? Because Jesus understands the sinful condition, not just of Nicodemus, but of you and of me, that any time, We think, like sin is really like, when we think we can be our own savior, when we think if I do enough good things, if I can achieve what I want, then I'll have joy and life and satisfaction and all of it. And it's revealing our condition. Like, I don't care what your resume is, I don't care how awesome you are, how dominant you are, the reality is, all right, there's a call to be born again. That's what he's saying to Nicodemus, what he's saying to us. So look with me, Ezekiel chapter 36. I will, let's just remember, this is God's declaration. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So apparently even in that moment where it's like, okay, well, Jesus is gonna do that, and then I gotta live it out in obedience. He's like, no, 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 no. Actually, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes. And so like it's God's enabling grace through and through. And so the context for this is we look back at what Jesus is is saying, all right? And theologians have argued and debated about this. But in verse five, Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. And then he, this kind of cryptic phrase, it feels like the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the, the spirit. And then Nicodemus again asks, well, how can this be? Well, Ezekiel sort of clues this in. Like what he's talking about here when he speaks of born of water and born of the spirit. Like, do you see those themes come up? in it, the book of Ezekiel, in that particular passage. Like, it's communicating one and the same thing. Like, God is going to do this work. Perhaps water is referring to, or John the Baptist had called people to be baptized. It was a baptism of repentance. I mean, that certainly is part of it. It's a recognition. Here's my resume. Here's all the things that, that I've done. Here's the ways that I've sinned in obvious ways. And here's all the things that actually people praise me for, and it looks like I'm doing all the right stuff, but actually I've done it because I think it's gonna bring praise and honor and glory to my name, or somehow I'm gonna appease God. Like, wherever the category, like whatever side of that, it's a way to say, hey, I gotta repent of that, and so there's this new birth. The Apostle Paul would speak of this. He writes to a church in Corinth, and he's reminding them of their identity, and he's saying, this is what the Lord has done. And if you've been around Crosspoint for any amount of time, you've heard me say this before, but I think it bears like repeating again. There is this notion sometimes that, man, could we just get back to the New Testament church? Please go and read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians sometime and just realize, oh, a bunch of messed up people in need of Jesus. If that's what you mean by get back to the New Testament church, absolutely, yes and amen a thousand times over. But if it's this view that somehow it's like, oh, they had all their stuff together. No, that's not it. Like It's so incredibly dysfunctional. And yet, Paul would write to this group of people, and here's what he would say. It's new birth sort of language, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? He's a new creation, new birth, born again. The old, and the other translations will say, behold, like just be in awe of that. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. So that's the calling. And I love that this is framed throughout the scriptures as not a thing for us to do. Like, remember that. If, if, the, if Nicodemus had heard Jesus say, be born again, I mean, his mindset, what did it go to? Okay, that seems impossible. I don't know how to do that, like the whole womb thing. Like, how's that gonna happen? But he's living with a mindset that says, tell me what to do. Tell me what boxes to check. How am I actually gonna do this? And the reason he's asking the questions is because he's starting to realize that seems impossible. And the moment you're at the edge of like, this seems impossible, we are actually ready to receive the grace of God. And that's not just when you first become a Christian, but in all of life, realizing everything is by God's grace, even being able to live in obedience and to be able to honor him, it's all fueled by the Spirit. And what this should lead to is not an arrogance of look at me and what I've done, but rather, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you've rescued me. Thank you that you've caused me to be born again. Thank you that you sent your spirit. Thank you that you're doing all of these things. But what we receive and what was on offer to Nicodemus, and we don't know by the end of verse 21, like, what did he do with it? There's this amazing offer, and it's a call to, to commitment. It's a call to follow Jesus. It's a call to embrace this. But it is going to come at a significant cost. So this is the last section. As we look at 14 to 21, we'll look at this. Like, what does it actually cost? Like, how does this actually come about? And this is where we get into John 3.16. is going to come up here. Like, one of the most famous verses ever. 
and it's laying out for, like I think sometimes we can hear that and like, okay, yeah, God's the love of the world and we can rattle it off or we're familiar with it. I mean, it is marvelous. Like what's contained here, I mean, it is mind-blowing. It is so amazing. And it starts with this obscure Old Testament reference. So verse 14, it says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, it's like if you're new to the Bible particularly, and even if you've been reading the Bible your, your whole life, it's like, wait, wait, what is he, what is he talking about? Because my guess is, all right, maybe you've had this experience. Here, it's New Year. I'm going to read through the Bible. Genesis, Exodus. Maybe you make it through Leviticus. Dude, and then numbers hits, and you're like, peace out. Like, I'm done, right? Like, not that there's not good stuff in there, but like, sometimes it's even hard to just make it through. Well, what this is referencing in verse 14 is a story out of the book of Numbers, all right? And in this particular account, in this particular story, God's people have just said, hey, we wanna do our own thing. Like, they're literally, they're rebelling in like every possible way. And God's like, okay, the there's, I'm gonna send judgment. Like, I'm literally like, there's gonna be consequences for your action. Um, and so in what might be the most terrifying thing ever, he sends like poisonous serpents, poisonous snakes, all right? And they're literally like moving all through the, the camp of, of God's people and they're biting people and, and people are dying. And, and so they're crying out like, Moses, help us. What, like call out to God, all right? And it's in that context that Numbers 21 verse nine comes up. So Moses made a bronze snake, mounted it on a pole, and whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. So as we get into the lead up to the most maybe famous book in the, or sorry, verse in the Bible of John 3.16, this Old Testament reference, well, it's another way of communicating like what's in a man, what is inside of us. Like we've been bit. There's, there's, there, it's poison. We are literally just, you know, moments away from eternal separation from God, all right? And if you're like, well, I got a long time to live, like in the scope of eternity, like even if you live to be 100, like it's a blip on the radar, right? Like we're fleeting and we're like a mist is what our life is like. And so we're called to pay attention to these things. And in the same way, people were filled in, being filled up with this poison from, from the snakes, but if they looked, they looked up at the snake that had been like lifted up, they're healed. And this is the theme that John is using over and over again about the cost of Jesus, like what he was willing to do to be put on that cross and yet also being framed as not only was it his cost and his sacrifice, but it was like his crowning achievement. He's being lifted up in the place, weirdly, it would seem of honor, even though it like doesn't compute to us, but it's because of all that it's accomplishing. And so like the book of Numbers is saying something now is happening. The poison that has inflicted all of us that is running through our veins, the only way we're gonna find life is that we look up. It's not to a bronze snake attached to a pole, but rather it's the God-man Jesus who entered in, who took all of the poison. Like he literally drank it. He endured the wrath of God. He endured the punishment, the penalty that you and I deserve for our sins. And he took it upon himself so that you and I could be healed, so that you and I could live, so that we might flourish. And it's in that context, we get to verse 16, then it says, and maybe your translation, what you're familiar with, for God so loved the world. And maybe you notice when I read it, the translation I'm using says, for God loved the world in this way. 
Nothing wrong with saying, for God so loved the world, but the way we tend to use that in just kind of common, like, everyday English language vernacular is like, oh, man, this sandwich is so amazing, or this movie is so, like, it's just kind of an emphasis on that, right? Or this place we visit is, like, so breathtaking. So is being used, and I think that's why it's more accurate to say it's about how, like, God loved the world in this way. He's not like, I so love you, even though that is true. He's saying, hey, I want you to know God loved you in this way. Like, God loved the world in a particular way. It wasn't simply words that he spoke. It was the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I could be born again, that we could have newness of life. And like your first birth that you did nothing about or nothing for, you contributed nothing, same with your second birth, God has to step in and do it all. That's what we're celebrating in Holy Week, right? I mean, that's the, the joy that we get to be partakers in as the, as the church. It's like, this is the most amazing thing ever. I literally did nothing except sin and mess up. And even if I appear to be all put together like Nicodemus, the reality is I know what's in a man. I know what's in me. Jesus knows more clearly what's in me, what's in you. And we don't stand a chance except for the redeeming work of Christ. And so he tells us, all right, God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have that eternal life. And it starts now, like to live as part of in this kingdom. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He had every right to send his son Jesus to say, all right, it's judgment time. I'm here to condemn the world. And no one could stand and be like, you know what, I actually don't deserve condemnation. Nope, I'm gonna plead not guilty. Like literally every single one of us, guilty as charged. Like guilty, 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 condemned. But he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world through him. And I love this. I had a, a professor in college this theology professor named Gary Burge, and he wrote a commentary on the book of, on the book of John, uh, which tells me, like, I probably should have paid more attention when I was in his class, right? Like, oh, dude's, like, doing the scholarly work. And anyway, um, in this, there's this great quote I came across uh, this week because he says, sometimes there even can be this misunderstanding of, like, like, God the Father is up there just, like, eternally angry at us, right? And Jesus steps up and like, hey, 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 you know, God the Father, hey, hold on a second. I've got this other plan. Will you just let me go do my thing? I can get this figured out. And he's like, whatever, you go, go deal with it. That's not it. God loved the world in this way. So he says this. He says, the cross is thus God's work. Jesus Christ came to earth in order, sorry, Jesus Christ came to earth not in order to change God's mind, but to express God's mind. Like before time began, the, the plan that God had put in place is like, hey, I know what's in you. I know what it's gonna cost in order to get you back into the family, into the present, and, and I'm willing to do it. And Jesus is willing to do it. God the Son is willing to do it. Even when he's praying and gets something like, you know, Lord, can this cup pass? And what is he willing to do? I'm gonna drink the poison. I'm gonna drink it all. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus Christ came to earth not in order to change God's mind, to express God's mind. God is that committed to you. He's like, I want, I want you to experience this. And there's this offer then. I mean, that's the beautiful invitation that we have. And yet, Jesus lays it out very clearly. Some are gonna believe and some are not. Like, there's no neutral territory. There's no middle ground. And so, church, as we get ready to close here, like, it's just this invitation. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you're somebody that's like, I don't know if I believe in this. What would it look like to believe and to trust this offer that is given to you? Like, 
you can't cause yourself to be born again, but Jesus will do it. Jesus has died in, in your place. Jesus offers you forgiveness. He offers you salvation. And there's this movement that we see from darkness to light. And if you're here this morning already as a follower of Christ, the invitation is, do you believe his promises? Do you believe that the life of following Christ is the best possible life, that eternal life starts now? Are you gonna hold on to those things, continue to try and keep them in the darkness, sin that you haven't repented of, things that you haven't shared with other people, not opening yourself up to being involved in the life of the body of the church, maybe continuing to just stay in this mode of like, I'm gonna do what I wanna do and I'm gonna seek my kingdom and if I got a little bit of time to serve some other people, great, but I'm after it, like for me, I'll get around to serving other people at some later date. Like all of that is darkness. All of that is us not moving into the light and what Jesus invites us to. And so the call and the invitation is like, will we believe? Will we believe following Jesus is the best possible way to live? And that there's such joy in it. And not only a joy that you experience, but there's a joy that God has as he rejoices over you right now as a follower of him. And so, a few verses, I'm sorry, a few chapters later, rather, there's this really interesting account. Throughout the book of John, Jesus refers multiple times to the hour, and the hour refers to the hour of his death. It's what we're going to look at in depth this Friday with Good Friday. And Jesus is telling his followers, he's saying, like, that hour, it's approaching. Like, I'm going to give my life. And, and it doesn't compute to them. They, they don't understand. They, they don't know what to do with that. But he tells him, and then interestingly enough, he uses birth imagery, like birth language, to drive home his points. So let me read this to you. This is John chapter 16. He says this, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour, and there's that phrase, has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus is asking us to consider. Listen, just think about the pain, and, right? and so, so I've heard, right? Like apparently there, there's pain associated with this. I use the logic every now and again. I get it, I know, I've had a kidney stone, it's, right? And, and every woman I've ever said that to is like, shut your mouth now, right? Um, and so, rightly so, okay. So, um, but what he's really driving at is not only the pain, but you, that picture, right? Like after the child has been delivered, like, what does the focus become? I mean, it's like, oh my goodness. Like, it's marveling. Just absolutely marveling. Now, in his book on this particular account, it's a short little book called On Birth by Tim Keller. Let me read to you the, this quote. I promise you this is really the end, okay? It says this. Do you see what Jesus is saying? And he's talking about a time, it was very risky for women back then to give birth. Often as many of them would die in the whole process. It says, your first birth brings you physical life because someone risked her life. But your second birth brings you spiritual and eternal life because someone gave his life. That someone was me. Like, that's what's being communicated by Jesus. Now, if we stay with Jesus' metaphor in John 16, what I just read a moment ago, it gets even more wonderful. He says that in spite of her incredible pain, a new mother is filled with joy at the sight of her child. So Jesus, get this, has the audacity to say, now, that's just a dim hint of the joy I sense when I look at you. All my suffering, torment, and death, I have willingly borne for the greater joy of saving and loving you. Until you see that, 
and believe that and rest in that, you cannot be born again. The life of the born again Christian, it is not just this eccentric, weird sort of thing. The life of the born again Christian is the life of joy. It's like, yes, I'm born again. Like, how amazing is it that Jesus has done this for me? And the way a mother holds a newborn child and just marvels and is like, isn't he or she the most beautiful thing you've, you've ever seen? Like, hear this. The God of the universe, because God so loved, God loved you in this way that Jesus endured that hour. Jesus endured the pain so that this new birth could happen. And now the disposition of God is one that he's like, look, this is my child. Isn't he amazing? Isn't she amazing? It's not because in and of yourself, you're awesome or I'm awesome, but Jesus is, and he gave it all to us, all of his righteousness, his spotlessness, all of it. And now God the Father can rejoice over us and just like, look at my child, born again. That's the invitation. That's the work that God has done. I'm praying for us, church, that, that we might recapture what it actually means to be born again. And that sharing that with other people would not be seen as some sort of fringe, weird thing that's out there. But it's like, how do I get in on being born again? And the way you get in on it is to repent of your sin, to acknowledge, I can't contribute anything other than my sin and mess of this, and I trust in Jesus. Jesus Rip out this old heart and put in this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh that would beat for you. That's our hope. That's our prayer. And Jesus is the one that makes that possible. And so in light of that, we're going to continue to celebrate. We're going to celebrate through song. And so in a moment, the worship team's going to come up. Please join in in singing. Let's rejoice together. If you need to take time just to, to pray and contemplate, whatever that looks like. You can stand. You can sit. You can kneel. Whatever. But when you're ready as well, if you're a follower of Jesus and come up, Grab some of the communion elements and bring it back to your seat and we'll partake after this next song is finished. Those of you that are gathered with us at, at your respective homes, you can get elements ready there and participate here. But let me pray for us and let's continue and let's worship Jesus and let's thank him that he's made it possible for a second birth that we actually can be born again Christians. It's great news. Let me pray for us. Jesus. We are so thankful for the story that you've made possible. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you that you so loved, you loved us in this way that you sent your son Jesus. And God, I pray that even in this, this holy week, God, that you would use it to bring people from the darkness to the light, from, from death to life. And God, for those of us that have been rescued by you, may we not live with a posture of, of somehow like accomplishment or arrogance or pride, but may we be humbled by this, this message that there's nothing that we've contributed. May it cause us to be willing to bring things into the light because we've got nothing to hide. You've literally paid for it all and you're inviting us to live more fully into this eternal life that starts now. And so, God, I pray as we worship you now through song and through participation in this meal, and even as the service ends today and we are sent out, I pray that we would embrace the identity that we are new creations, that we've been born again, and that we would live for your glory and your fame, and in doing so, that we would experience just a deep and abiding joy. So meet us now in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.